This is The Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to The Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, and on today's show, I will be joined with the John Zmirak, senior editor of Stream.org, the most important thought site in the world, and author of numerous books, including The Politically Incorrect Guide to Catholicism, and with me, The Race to Save Our Century. John is my guest today. We will be discussing the rise of illiberalism in the conservative movement, and in particular, the most recent assault on our Constitution in the Atlantic Monthly, penned by Adrian Vermeule. What is with all of these people, so-called conservatives, warring against our Constitution and the Declaration principle our Constitution was written to defend? John's going to help us understand all of that and more. This episode has been brought to you by Movie to Movement and the Vulnerable People Project. Go to thegreatcampaign.org today for your free copy of John's book, and my book, The Race to Save Our Century. That's thegreatcampaign.org, thegreatcampaign.org, for your free book. Here we go, The Jason Jones Show. Aloha, John Smirak. Welcome back to The Jason Jones Show. Thanks. Great to be on, ain't Jason? Sorry, my dog just jumped in my lap. No, I, t- I tell people, people the cost of John Smirak's brilliance on your programming is you, you, you have to hear the Beagles too. Yeah, they will bark at some point. That is There's the price. Someone... Look, if Eric Metaxas can handle it, I can handle it. And uh, we, we, <laughs> Absolutely. we love your Beagles. So, so, John, the reason I wanted to have you on is don't, don't judge me, but I, I subscribe to the Atlantic Monthly. And. Adrian Vermeule, someone that you put on my radar a long time ago, along with a whole host of other illiberals, penned an article that is a direct assault at American liberalism. And years ago... And American conservatism, by any stretch of the imagination as we would define it, it's an attack on the American system period, and on the founding and the American Revolution, and basically everything that has happened in the English-speaking world since the Spanish Armada didn't land. Exactly. When I use the American liberalism, what I mean by that is sort of the, as conservatives, we're trying to conserve the Anglo-American project, which is right, properly right. understood yeah, liberalism. But I think, yeah, you're right. We might yeah. lose a lot of our audience when we say it that way. So now you, when we first met, you started pointing out all of these folks who you called illiberal. You know, you said, this person's illiberal. That per-. I said, John Smirak is an eccentric genius who sees illiberals behind every tree. But as I've been walking through the forest for the past 10 years since we first met, there seems to be an illiberal behind every tree. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I... First, let's define it, okay? The, um, these people call themselves integralists, and they claim that 
instead of our society focusing on maximizing personal freedom within the context of a broadly understood common good, uh, instead the state should be promoting the common good aggressively in every citizen's life, whether that citizen really wants it or not, and that included in the definition of the common good is everyone's eternal salvation. So the government ought to be promoting the true religion and restricting and punishing false religions, especially false versions of Christianity. That is anything but their version of traditional Catholicism. So they, they essentially want what in the modern context would be a totalitarian state where the government supervises all your decisions, uh, what you read, what you say, what you think, and guides them gently or not towards traditional Catholicism. And if this, if this sounds like Islamic Sharia to you, you're right. That's exactly what it is. It's a Catholic version of Sharia law. Um, when the Catholic Church promoted ideas like this in the Middle Ages and in the 18th century, we didn't have modern surveillance technology. We didn't have police states. We didn't have things like the NSA. We didn't have information centralized on things like the Internet. Um, and so even if the intentions of the Spanish Inquisition or King Louis XIV were to be tyrannical and to force everyone in the country to believe the same way. They didn't have the means to do it. Now we do. Now a modern government could really could impose a great deal of uniformity of thought, really can crush individual freedom in a frightening way. And I think that's why the church at Vatican II recognized the danger of giving the, the government that kind of power and why at Vatican II, the council fathers correctly embraced the principle of religious freedom. The same principle the church held onto for the first four centuries. It's what the apostles taught. It's what the first councils of the church took for granted. You didn't see any Christians talking about, we need to take over the Roman Empire so that we can crush heresy and forcibly convert the Jews. There was none of that. Once Constantine converted, one of his successors, Theodosius, actually decided to outlaw every religion except Catholicism. And some, you know, the bishops didn't complain because you know it sounded good to them. But unfortunately, that was an innovation. That doesn't fit with the words of the gospel where Jesus says, preach to a city, and if they don't hear you, walk out and shake the dust from your feet. He didn't say, bring in the religious police, start arresting and interrogating heretics, start torturing them and burning them at the stake. I mean, maybe my Bible translation is a liberal one, but I can't see that in the gospel. So I think that the church, by going along with Caesar, starting with Theodosius, up through Vatican II in many places, um, I think you know the popes made mistakes. This was not an infallible area. This was not something where they taught ex cathedra. So they were able to make mistakes just as, you know, Popes approved of slavery. There were popes who said any lending an interest at all is a sin against nature like sodomy. Well, now there's a Vatican bank that charges interest, and you had multiple papal statements allowing for people to borrow and lend at interest. So the church does learn. The church is not like the Bourbon monarchy, which learned nothing and forgot nothing. Um, 
these integralists are grabbing onto statements from the 19th and 18th century where popes denounce freedom of speech and freedom of the press and freedom of religion, and they're claiming that these are effectively infallible statements which you must accept if you're a Catholic, and you must try to impose on all of society. And so, again, they're building up a Catholic Sharia. I did an article at stream.org about this called Is Integralism Catholic Sharia? I recommend people read it. I did a follow-up piece. Catholics who favor theocracy are imitating not Christ, but the Muslim Brotherhood. And I'd like to explain that. The Muslim Brotherhood grew up in Egypt after 1926. 1926 was the, was the end of the caliphate. The caliphate was the central, official, legitimate institution for Sunni Islam. It was essentially like their papacy, the closest thing that Islam had to one. When it collapsed, this provoked a global crisis among Muslims who no longer had a central religious authority, and the Muslim Brotherhood was created as a kind of an ad hoc movement by laymen to fix Islam. And what they saw as the problems in Islam were that it was too liberal, it was too modern, it was too tolerant of Jews and Christians, it was letting women get out of control. It, it, had, it had fallen away from the purity, the pure theocracy that it had practiced since Muhammad. And I think with the collapse of the papacy under Pope Francis, we're seeing a lot of Catholics have the same reaction as the people who founded the Muslim Brotherhood. The, the, the official, the locus of authority, the papacy, is falling apart. We as laymen, we're going to replace it. We're going to crowdsource it. We're going to start a movement that brings the church back to when it was strong and powerful because it was theocratic and strict and not willing to listen to anything in secular society, not willing to learn the lessons of history, but intent on using the powers of the state to impose itself in a totalitarian manner on everyone it can. And that's what Adrian Vermeule believes in. And it, he argues for that in a very subtle, underhanded way at the Atlantic Monthly. But um, he said it openly in other places. He, uh, when First Things ran a scandalous article saying that it was right for Pius IX, uh, there was a case Pius IX was the ruler of the Papal States in the 19th century. And there was a law that you couldn't baptize Jewish children without their parents' consent, and that's a, that was a good law. But there was another law that if you did, if you violated the law and then you baptized that child, that child was now a Christian. And then the pope would have to take the child away and raise him as a Christian against the parents' wishes. And that happened to a boy named Edgardo Mortara. And it caused an international scandal. It actually helped bring about the end of the papal states. Uh, First Things Magazine ran an article saying Pius IX was right to do that. And then they got a real storm of criticism, so they backed down and apologized, and Adrian Vermeule denounced them for it. He wrote in defense of the Pope kidnapping a Jewish child who was baptized Christian by, its, by, by the Christian housemaid. So his notion of the common good, which he says – he talks about the common good in very bland, vague, general ways in the Atlantic Monthly article. But we know from his other writing, his version of the common good in, involves bishops being able to imprison any baptized Christian who he regards as heretical. So Cardinal Kupich could arrest Franklin Graham if he ever passed through Chicago. Yeah, or Cardinal Burke, I guess. Now, yeah. is, is, yeah. is there illiberalism? I, you know – 
John, I see their Catholicism as accidental and illiberalism as sort of their foundation. You know, the spirit of the age today is illiberal. You, you walk into a bookstore, every other book is the death of liberalism. Again, by that, we, we don't mean the political left, which is illiberal. We mean the American project. And Right. And I think, I think you're right. The left has given up on even pretending that the American project is good. That's what the 1619 project from the New York Times, it was a historically fraudulent attempt to, to, to pr- try to prove that the American Revolution was motivated by slave owners who were afraid that the King of England might free their slaves. No kidding. That crank theory has been promoted by historians in the New York Times, and they're creating school curricula that they're trying to impose on school districts to teach everyone that the U.S. from the beginning was a wicked, racist oligarchy. Now remember, when the U.S. was settled and founded, slavery was in every part of the world and had been with us for the whole of human history. Why single out the American founders for be, for not universally being anti-slavery when the leaders of every other country weren't either? Well, does that mean Spain was always evil? France was always evil? England was always evil? Because you know they had slavery for centuries centuries and they didn't abolish slavery much sooner than we did no and the noble example of founding fathers like john adams his son uh, george mason and, and and so many others who were who were uh, ardent abolitionists the, the birth of the abolitionist movement began in the english-speaking world and in the- i would say that the, the ideas behind the american revolution gave enormous strength to the abolition of slavery. The the adoption of the Declaration of Independence encoded a notion of equality that slavery could not long survive, and indeed it did not long survive it, not even by 100 years. So these illiberals, John, they attack you. I love watching the Groypers and others attack you. Uh, um, and you'll, and they, what do they say? I blocked, I well, blocked them all. Well, what do they and, say? well, they say the same thing about me as they, they say about you that were secret Jews and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and other bizarre things. Um, but I noticed when you go and you look at these threads, when I tripped into this debate accidentally and had thousands of messages from just despicable, sad little creatures calling me all sorts of names some of them were claiming to be Satanists and others neo-pagans and others evangelical and others, you know, ardent Catholics and others committed Calvinists. But what they all had that, that, that made them a little crew, a little mob together was their, 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 uh, they despised America. They despised the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, which, like you said, Adrian Vermeule's, um, I mean, I don't think it's even very cleverly written. I just, it's, it's, it's bizarre, his, his article in Atlantic Monthly, but it, it shows well, a disdain a for the Constitution. Yeah, what, what is the source yeah. of that? I think for many people, their, their own personal failure and sense of impotence. I think that's the source of anti-Semitism. You see individual Catholics who think, well, we're 30% of the population and we have like 2% of the influence. And Jews are 2% of the population and have 30% of the influence. They must be engaged in a wicked conspiracy to suppress us. Or, or maybe we have been 
walking around with our pants down, tearing our own church apart, letting people like Ted Kennedy and Cardinal Bernadine lead us and listening to them and selling our souls to the Democratic Party in return for government money and letting our own institutions fall apart. That's not the fault of Jewish people who are simply living their lives and doing a good job of asserting what they think is best as citizens should be able to. Don't blame other people for succeeding. Blame yourself for failing. But that's not fun. That's an examination of conscience. That's looking in the mirror and saying, yep, I'm fat. Much better to look at other people and say, they're anorexic. They're sick with dieting. They're probably taking meth. That's why they're thin. What is the connection between illiberalism and anti-Semitism? Because they seem to go hand in hand. It's... it's Anti-Semitism is, it's kind of like a parasite. It'll latch on to any kind of weakness. So if you're economically envious, anti-Semitism is tempting. If you, if you hate modernity and, and you believe in restoring some medieval fantasy world that never really existed, um, you're going you're gonna to resent the Jews. If you like to scapegoat, if you don't want to have to think through ideas and you just want to blame a group, say you want to blame them for communism, you can latch on to anti-Semitism. Uh, Michael Jones blames them for pornography and communism and capitalism. You see, it's, it's, I, think, I, think, I think Jews are like the canary in the coal mine. When people start going after them, you're in trouble because, and you're next. If we let them be singled out, they're coming for us next. You saw that in the, even in the Middle Ages, when a monarch would expel the Jews from his kingdom, it was often to buy popularity with the, with the mob. Those same monarchs were the ones who ended up taking over the church and destroying its freedom, uh, attacking business and, and, and installing all sorts of unfair policies that hurt, business, hurt private business. I mean, the same French king who persecuted the Jews persecuted the innocent Knights Templar. And then arrested the Pope and took him prisoner. So I think when you see people engaging in anti-Semitism, it's always a sign of something dark in their character that won't just hurt Jews. It'll hurt other people next. So treat them like the canary in the, in the coal mine. If somebody starts going after the Jews, get worried because you are next. So they're, uh, they're uh, an easy, identifiable other yeah, that you can for use scapegoat, scapegoat. to scapegoat to cr try to restore order as you feel it beginning to slip away. So whenever That's you right. feel they, political disorder enter a political community, we know that scapegoating is is going to begin, and the Jews are everywhere, right in the West, and they're a minority, and they're they're an easy identifiable other. And uh, I mean, look at this way. The, Mus the Muslims scapegoated them in 1948, drove them out of the entire Arab world. Boy, hasn't the Muslim world been doing great since then? They got rid of those pesky Jews. Now they're prosperous, free, thriving societies, aren't they? Well, and that's what concerns me now, just reading Gerard, is we, we have this, this disorder, this, dis this disruption to the political community here and everywhere. Who are we going to scapegoat? And... This resurgence of illiberalism and sort of this like glee. The people are looking at this, the integralists are looking at this as an example. This present chaos is an example of the failure of 
American, uh, the American experiment, American liberalism, when we know this is the failure of totalitarianism. This is the failure of an illiberal society uh, that's damaging the, the world. You know, now, now the, the uh, I mean, an- an- another very destructive argument you get from Patrick Deneen, who claims that Anthony Kennedy was right in Casey in Planned Parenthood versus Casey that American freedom really always did imply abortion and same-sex marriage and pornography everywhere. That this kind of radical autonomy applied to sexual matters, not to anything else, not to the economy. You know, not they're not getting rid of minimum wage laws. They're not getting rid of any discrimination laws. But this kind of sexual libertinism was always at the heart of the American founding. And you can trace it back to John Locke and Thomas Hobbes. And and this argument that basically says the ACLU is right and the American courts should be enforcing abortion on demand. And, and the only way to fix that is essentially to let America collapse or overthrow it and then refound it on some kind of integralist program. Um, this does nothing but help the left. And why do you think the left made such a big deal out of Patrick Deneen's book? I mean, Obama endorsed the, this book, Why Liberalism Failed, by Patrick Deneen. I think any book that Obama would endorse, I probably am not going to trust that as a conservative source uh, because he, it, Obama's no fool. He's not going to endorse a book he thinks going to help the conservative movement. He's going to endorse a book he thinks will help tear it apart. Likewise, um, people like you and me can't get published in the Atlantic Monthly, but they, they take an extremist like Vermeule, who they realize makes us look like lunatics and theocrats and Sharia advocates, and they give him 7,000 words, you know, so that he can make us look like outrageous, dangerous fanatics who need to be repressed. I mean, you have the New York Times saying that evangelical Christians helped cause the coronavirus crisis based on zero evidence. You have Andrew Cuomo saying pro-lifers, conservative Christians, and gun owners have no place in the state of New York. Imagine if he became president. We'd have no place in America, I guess. You have Bill de Blasio threatening to to seize all the churches in New York if they if they violate the coronavirus policies on the first offense. This, mind you, New York didn't even close the gay bathhouses during the AIDS crisis. We're in very dangerous times, and we can't be fooling around and dabbling with these outrageous and extreme ideas. Well, John, you are the senior editor of The Stream, which I think is the most important thought site in the world. And so I'm hoping everyone listening to the Jason Jones... Stream.org. Yeah, everyone listening should... Stream.org. Yeah, everyone listening should go bookmark the stream.org, and it should be the first place you go... I used to go to Drudge Report. I haven't gone in years regularly. And, John, you haven't been to the Drudge Report since 1999? That's right. I, I, I didn't know anybody else did either. <laughs> <That's> un- <laughs> well, nobody should go there anymore. It's like MSNBC meets the Inquirer. It's, it's, I don't know why you stopped in 1999, but it's, uh, it's changed a lot since 1999. So how do we – I mean – I, I joked that when I first met you, I, I, I thought you saw illiberals behind every tree. And in fact, there are illiberals behind every tree. Yeah, I just want to say it again, guys. I think the stream.org is the most important thought site, Christian thought site, thought site in general. It's the first place I go. And John, rumor has it that it's very influential in the White House. Well, 
I, I can't say for sure, but I, I do notice that, you know, when we write about certain things, they seem to be taken seriously at the White House. Um, I know that uh, James Robinson, our founder, is one of the pastors who prays with and gives counsel to the president. And, uh, you know, I would say that the things we uh, talked about, most of the stream that seemed to have been reflected were uh, attention for the Christians of Syria. Uh, the importance of supporting the Kurdish Christian alliance in northeastern Syria and protecting them from Turkish attack. I mean, we didn't get everything we wanted, but things could have been a lot worse than they are. Um, I think uh, President Trump has been really fantastic on life issues, uh, better than even than Ronald Reagan, though. Of course, Ronald Reagan was the first major pro-life Republican. He created the pro-life Republican Party we have today. So let's not judge Reagan too harshly. Uh, but I, I think Trump is much more consistent and vigorous on helping the Christian right on things that it legitimately wants for the common good, like pro-life things and pro-family things. Um, and I think, you know, that happened by happy accident. Donald Trump was politically isolated from the rest of the Republican Party. So was the Christian right. We had been begging for crumbs from the t GOP table ever since 1996, when the leaders of the religious right foolishly just listened to people like Karl Rove and backed Bob Dole over Pat Buchanan. That told the Republican establishment, these people aren't serious. They can be bought. You go to their leaders, you tell them who to vote for, they'll vote for Bob Dole, whose, whose wife was a leading pro-choice activist, over Pat Buchanan, who was a heroic pro-life, pro-family guy. Um, at that mo from that moment, we lost all our influence, and we were just begging for scraps from the Republican could, table. Could you imagine we, if, if Pat Buchanan w would have been elected president? It would have been a... a, a there would have been no NAFTA GATT. There would have been no most favored nation status for China. All these sort of right. pickles that were in there, we, we would have, uh, it would be better. We wouldn't have the coronavirus. Probably wouldn't have the coronavirus because China probably would be a very different country. And it wouldn't be a rich, incredibly powerful military threat that, that's conducting bioweapons research and, and arming itself faster than Hitler did in the 1930s. People need to read Stephen Mosher, his book, The Bully of Asia. Uh, documents how China is now a national socialist, ultra-nationalist dictatorship with a huge, fastly growing economy and a vastly expanded military. Uh, Stephen Mosher, for those people who don't remember, was the guy who exposed the Chinese one-child policy and their forced abortion policy that caused 400 million unborn Chinese kids to be killed against their parents' wishes. Yeah, and he was on this podcast just three days ago. So we had Steve. Oh, he's Mosher. one of my heroes. He's one of my, okay. He's one of my heroes. Yeah, no, you're both. That's what I love about this podcast. I I, I can lure my heroes to have conversations with me, like you, <laughs> like you and like you and like you and Steve Mosier. Um, yeah, no, I think it's fair to say that we wouldn't have the coronavirus, and you know, we might have actually a free a free wealthier China if they would have yeah. had to move towards us instead of giving them everything and getting nothing in return. And the, the people who've suffered most because of this are the minorities in China and, right. uh, and the Chinese people themselves. And again, I want to go back the to the stream. The Christian, the, the Christian minorities, the, the Muslim minorities, the Uyghurs. I mean, the, the same liberals who spent the last three years 
bashing everything as a Russian plot, Russian collusion, indulging in just whipping up hatred of everything to do with Russia. They, they defend the heck out of China, which is running concentration camps, stealing organs from political prisoners like the Uyghurs and selling them on the world market, according to Forbes magazine not some podcast, Forbes magazine reported that China makes millions selling organs that were take, cut out of living political prisoners, and then, of course, the prisoner died. So vivisection and essentially human sacrifice. This is the regime that Pope Francis chose to, to do, make an alliance with against the West that the Vatican says is the best practitioner of Catholic social teaching. It's staggering. No, it's unbelievable. And I was, I was just getting ready to say, you brought up the Uyghur. Imagine if the stream had the readership of the New York Times. The Uyghur, Muslim Uyghur, Muslim Kurds, Assyrian Christians, Chaldean Christians, Anuba. The stream has been at the forefront. And sometimes the only voice for these persecuted ethnic minorities, religious minorities, not Christians, and it was founded by James Robeson, an evangelical Christian who... You know, we're told that they're bigots, that they're narrow-minded, but here is this thought site that has been really leading the way. Um, and, and, and oftentimes, and I get this from people in occupied East Turkestan and Kurdistan, which, where I've been, that they're so grateful for the stream because of the constant. They said, it's not that you write an article here or there, it's the constant advocacy for us. And um, yeah, so that, that's why another reason I just want to encourage everyone to read to read the stream john and check check out our book the race to save our century that was a great project working on that with you and i really hope more people can read it yeah well it was sort of providential john because when i was sketching out that book and working on that book and hit a roadblock you had been somebody who i had admired greatly and had thought of asking to help me to write the book and then one day my friend our friend Jeff Smith said, you want, you want to go have dinner with a buddy of mine, John Zmerak? I'm like, wait, what? John Zmerak's a buddy of yours? And I think we went for Ethiopian or Indian food. I can't quite yep. remember. It was Ethiopian. I, I dragged 12 people to an Ethiopian restaurant. Most of them had never had the food before, and they had to eat like raw beef with their hands. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> no, Ethiopian and Afghan food is the best. The best, the best. I mean, it's, they're tied for, for I my love, favorite. I, so. I, like, I love them both. The getting writing that book with you was for me. A, it was my PhD, and it was sort of like I had you know you all to myself for years to sketch that book out and to work out on that book. So I, I agree. The race to save our century, as Eric Metaxas said, if there was one book you could give every college student in the world, it would be that book. And you know, John, I've made it for free right now. If people go to thegreatcampaign.org, simply for a donation of twenty dollars, they get our book, and and that's the book and the shipping. We we cover it all, which is we lose money on that, but. I think now more than ever, we need to get the book out. John, where would you say our battle against illiberalism, what would you recommend to folks listening practically on how we can battle against illiberalism, fight well, to preserve the Declaration principle and the Constitution that was written to preserve that vision of the human person embedded in the Declaration of Independence? That's really the project, right? The proj Abraham Lincoln yeah. said, the Constitution is the frame the work of art is the declaration principle that everyone is made in the image of God with inalienable rights. Or as we talk about it as Christian personalism, that every human person has an inviolable dignity and beauty. And that's the battle, right? The battle is to, to preserve that. And practically speaking, for folks listening... I have a practical... 
I have a nice practical thing. Okay. Every political proposal you have, draft it with the knowledge that you're going to need to get evangelical Christians on board with it because they are the ones who are carrying the water for the pro-life movement, the pro-family movement, most of the the social conservative causes in America are now led by evangelical Christians, not Catholics, because our bishops are all talking about the seamless garment. They get 40% of their money from the government, from uh, nonprofit contracts, which means they, they have to stay close to the Democrats. They're addicted to immigration. So, so the, the Catholics in, who are involved in this, we're on our own. We have no institutional support. But, the, but you have major Protestant churches and church leaders like Robinson and Jerry Falwell and Robert Jeffress and Franklin Graham who are supporting in, enormously important projects for, for the common good and for our freedom. Any project you want, could you ask your fellow Christians who aren't Catholics to sign on with it? Or is it so narrow and so parochial that it's only of interest to the 3% or 5% of Catholics in America who actually accept all the teachings of the church? If so, it's a total waste of time, and you might as well just go play Dungeons and Dragons in your parents' basement. But that's what they're doing. They're playing Dungeons and Dragons, right? I mean, that's what Adrian Vermeule is doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Total an, and utter waste of time. Counterproductive. It would be better if you were just writing a sequel to Fifty Shades of Grey. It would do less harm. <laughs> what would you say to people listening, inevitably, that are, are being seduced? You were a college professor. What is, what is it that attracts people? I, I want to share, you, you met my buddy Uday from, from Iraq. He was a general for Saddam Hussein's. For Saddam Hussein, now he's a, a media leader in media in the Arab-speaking world. And when he, he came to the United States for a mutual friend of ours' father's funeral, at the end of his trip, I said, what was most surprising to you about America? He said, first of all, Americans were nothing like I, I, I thought that they would be like. I thought they would hate me. I thought they would be godless. And But what I found is... I felt more at home in the United States before I left the airport than I feel in other neighborhoods in, in Baghdad, let alone other countries in the Middle East. Never felt more at home anywhere. He said, I know I'll never be allowed to live in the United States of America, but I'm going to take that with me wherever I go. The way I was treated in America, no one looked at me as another. And you met Uday in person, right? I mean, he looks kind of like Saddam Hussein's yeah. twin brother. <laughs> it's striking yeah. almost. And, uh, and he's got that big mustache and that thick Iraqi head of hair. He said, the second thing is not that, that no one treated me as another. They treated me as if I belonged. Uh, and I thought they would have hated me. They would have looked at me with scorn. He said, and the second thing was, I've never been, he said, I've been all over the Middle East. I've been all over Europe. I've never been anywhere where people were more thoughtful of God. He said, the American system of government frees people from their petty, their petty gripes, and it free, frees them. It frees them to worship and love God. And he said, "That's what our founders wanted. They yeah. wanted to disentangle church and state. They didn't want to see the the church corrupted by the money and power that comes with support of the government. They saw the Church of England." as basically corrupt and apathetic and not looking out for the common people and not really interested in anything spiritual, but just kind of time-serving like Amtrak or 
or postal employees. And, and they didn't want that. They didn't want religious persecution. They didn't want the government restricting people's religious free speech. They, they wanted the churches to be free and to be vigorous, to have a strong immune system that comes from having to argue and having to defend your ideas instead of just calling up the police and saying, oh, there's some heretics down the road, arrest them. Uh, and they saw that, that when churches are able to do that, the churches get corrupted. And where has the Catholic Church been most corrupt? In the places where it was most powerful, like Boston and Los Angeles. You had bishops who were basically just politicians come to power and operate in, in their own institutional self-aggrandizement, and uh, they covered up the sex abuse crisis. They've done nothing to protect unborn children. They've become adjuncts of the federal government and the welfare state. They, they might as well just be you know, po- po- branches of the post office or the DMV. So, so, and a final question then, what is it that attracts young students when you were a professor? And I guess that's why you had the first sight of this when you were a professor, what what was it that and Thomas? Yeah, where were you? Where was yeah. it when you first yeah. noticed it? Yeah. No, no, let's let's not name names because this is a widespread phenomenon at many different small Catholic liberal arts colleges. I, I wouldn't single any one of them out. I keep hearing reports from all different ones. It's when you're 18 or 19, you're a natural ideologue. You want things to be simple. You want them to be black and white. You want the answers to every political question to be like an arithmetic problem, not even a trig problem, an arithmetic problem. And you're attracted by theories that allow you to fantasize about exercising power over other people and controlling their lives. That's why so many young students become socialists or Marxists, because they get to imagine that they'll be philosopher kings. Well, in a Catholic setting, it's easier to do that with a different totalitarian system, namely integralism. So it's this, the same impulse, the same attraction. It's the, will to, it's the will to power combined with intellectual immaturity and a lack of charity, a lack of respect for your neighbor as equally the image of God as much as you are. And that's why you see someone like de Blasio say with glee, if anyone tries to open up a church, I will close that church forever. Like I will salt the Which ground under that church. Yeah, which is Meanwhile, you know, the AIDS crisis in New York, they didn't close the bathhouses for years until most of their customers had died of the disease. And then after three or four years of thousands of deaths, the city finally closed the last few of them. But he's ready to seize the property of churches three weeks into the crisis. This is a man who a month ago was telling people to come to Chinatown for Chinese New Year because it was safe. Don't worry about it. But now if you go to church, you know, a lot of that is just lack of love. They knew they knew that they should close the bathhouses to protect those men, but they didn't because they were victimists. They feigned concern for those men, but they actually had no thoughtfulness towards them. I have a friend, you may know him, Paul. We've interviewed him on this show. He was um, a homosexual, is same-sex attracted, and left. Now he's a Catholic in his, in his 70s. Left New York. He had to move from New York to San Francisco at the end of the sort of the, the beginning of the end of the, the worst part of the AIDS battle. And he said, the reason he had to leave New York is every one he knew, everyone he knew, all of his friends were dead. 
And he moved wow. to San Francisco and his friend said, you know, they have AIDS there too. And people have died there too. And he said, yes, but they weren't my friends. And everywhere I walk down the streets of New York, this business and that business and this restaurant and that restaurant, I have memories of my friend who worked there and my friend who worked there. And the time we all went there, right. all died. They had no love. They were not genuinely animated by thoughtfulness or concern for those citizens. And so, and I don't think the same kind of people care now about whether or not people get coronavirus. They're using it as 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 a means to gain power, to stuff money into federal programs for for the Kennedy Center and the Green New Deal. I mean, look, I think the virus is real, and we need to do this quarantine. But I don't like to see the left weaponizing it and using it to destroy our constitutional rights or shovel more money into their pet projects. Listen, Jason, I need to get back to something, but it's been great talking to you. Let's do this again soon, okay? All, all right, John, thank you very much. Follow all John right, uh, and, and all the other great writers, including me at the stream.org. And um, it's Hodge. actually just, it's just stream.org. There's no the. Oh, I'm sorry. Just stream.org. I'm sorry. Follow. I just want people to find it. <laughs> I get you. Follow John and, and the other great writers, including me at stream.org. John Zmirak is my favorite writer. He's bold. He's courageous. He bravely stood up to the catastrophe that was the mistake uh, to invade Iraq and topple that regime and open it up to the chaos that led to genocide and democide. For a decade now, he's been warning about the rise of illiberalism in the conservative movement. So follow John and join. Check out my book. Yeah, John. Check out my book, The Politically. I'm sorry. Okay. John, give it all. Give Give all your books, John. No, no, just the politically incorrect guide to Catholicism is one that's very current and very up to date. The politically incorrect guide to immigration. And then I have a series, The Bad Catholics Guide. They're kind of lighthearted, fun books from the mid 2000s about the Catholic faith. Like the, and my favorite one is the, the Bad Catholics Guide to the Seven Deadly Sins. That's right. And then go to our website, thegreatcampaign.org, and get your free copy of our book. The Race to Save Our Century, a $20 donation. It's tax deductible. Get you a book, and that includes shipping. Guys, I love when I have John on. Uh, tune in next week. Uh, on Monday, we will be back. We're going to have a lot of big guests next week. I can't wait to share those folks with you. This has been another episode of the Jason Jones Show. Till then, aloha. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Oh, 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 oh,